All right, let's pray and we'll, we'll get at it. Father, we love your word. This is more than tradition to us this morning. This is an act of worship as we study your word, which we believe to be God-inspired, Holy Spirit-breathed, that the prophets of old were carried along as the Spirit led them, God, that you preserved this word. You have revealed to us who you are and how you operate and what you value and your, your nature. You've revealed to us all those things through the scriptures. And so as we study the scriptures, God, we're not just going through motions, but we're learning of you and worshiping you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move in this time in power and in anointing and that you would settle upon our hearts with great grace And as we walk out of this room today, Lord, we want our hearts to be shored up in the gospel of Christ. We want to look more like Jesus. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Somebody say amen. Sociologists tell us that we are all worshipers. Every society for all of history has participated in worship. Archaeology would testify to the same fact. As we learn of new people groups in different ages, we always find worship. We find worshiping the rivers or worshiping the stars, the sun or the moon. Every society worships. Worship is foundational and fundamental to human existence. Now in modernity, in our hour, there are many who would say, I hold an atheistic worldview, an atheist worldview that doesn't believe in God, therefore I can't worship. And I understand that argument, but I'd like to say two things. Number one, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Number two, from a biblical perspective, we all must have something to live for. We have within our ribcage, within our chest, a throne which some king must sit upon. And so you can deny the existence of God until you're blue in the face, but something will sit upon the throne of your heart. And it very well may be the fulfillment of your own dreams or your own desires. You may set on the throne of your heart the fulfillment of sexual desires and live all of your life to strive after lust. And if these desires would be fulfilled, then I would have peace. Then I could be happy. And I would say lust is the king of your heart. Or you could say, if I had more money, if I just had more money, then then maybe I could be happy and fulfilled. And so you placed upon the throne of your heart what Jesus calls the God mammon. The money becomes your, your God. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry. And so everyone must worship. Some can claim they don't believe in God, but they still worship. And this has been taught throughout church history, and it leads some, Tim Keller said so gracefully, he said, you don't get to decide whether or not you'll worship. Everyone worships. The only choice you get to decide is what you will worship. You will worship. Now that's the plight of humanity. There's a throne within your ribcage. Something's going to sit on it. And what sits on it, what you enthrone upon your heart, dictates what you value, what you believe about life, what you believe about what you're here for, how you respond to trial and suffering, what you place upon your heart. It will cause, it creates an ideology or a worldview. We are all worshipers, and what we enthrone upon our heart and largely dictates our philosophy of life. And so, in a very real way, we all philosophize, whether you ever admit that or not. And in the moment, you might even not know what you're doing, but you do philosophy. Your children will do philosophy. 
they will value certain things above other things. And when you come to the major cultural issues like abortion and sexuality, there are philosophical tones in all of that. And your kids will have to decide what they believe about those issues. And we're all theologians. Some of us are really bad theologians. But we all have theological views. You're forced to. Every human is forced to have a theological conviction, theological views. We are all, in a sense, reaching for God or a God. You're forced to find meaning in your life. You can't keep getting up and getting dressed and feeding yourself without finding some meaning. A pastor I like very much pointed out this week that we are all science believers and science deniers, every one of us. We all believe in the scientific method. I believe in gravity every time I throw my kids up in the air. I don't put my hands up, I'm getting popped. Probably getting popped anyway. Those kids are rough. And what he meant by that is that we all use the scientific method and we all have to think about what's reality and what's not reality. And every one of us believe in science and every one of us, we deny certain scientific hypotheses. And so, for instance... I'm not real opinionated about climate change. I'm really not that opinionated. But I also don't particularly believe that climate change is as detrimental or as dramatic as many make it out to be. Not because I deny science, but because I don't believe that we actually have enough data to make the kind of claims that we're making. So you could say, you don't believe in climate change, you're a science denier. And I say, no, I'm actually doing science. I'm saying that you don't have the the proper data to make the claim that you make. I'm critiquing your scientific method. It's the same with evolutionary theory. You could say, you're a science denier because you don't believe in evolution. No, I believe in science. I'm telling you that the hypothesis doesn't have the appropriate support to be factual. It's a hypothesis. And to teach it as if it's factual without facts is religious. You're religious. And you are operating in faith on a theory. And so the, the other side can scream at us all day long, you're science deniers, and I would say, well, yes, I believe in science, and I deny certain sciences based on what's true and false. We have to think critically. If we don't think critically, what do we have at all? And I could scream at the other side, oh, you continue to say that a, that, that a child with a heartbeat in a womb is just a clump of cells. You deny science. Clearly, life Now, I said all of that to say, and you could say to me, Caleb, that's a heady conversation and we're three-fourths of us are totally glazed over at this point. <laughs> and I understand. But what, what I want you to realize is that your kids and your children, they will worship, they will do theology, they will have a philosophy of life, they will accept, they will accept some scientific theories and they will be forced to reject to others. And so you could say, Caleb, I'm really not that interested in this kind of heady conversation or debating about climate change. And I say, okay, that's, that's all well and good enough, but you should be interested in your children's future worship. Whether or not they will adore the God of ages. Whether or not they will bow their knee to the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth. Whether or not they will bring before God a holy and pure incense. I am not so concerned as to have a million political discussions and a million political debates. But I am highly concerned with whether or not my kids serve Yahweh, the God of Scripture.
And so as we step into John chapter 1, what we will read is majestic theology, high theology, theology that should make you smack yourself on the front of the head because you couldn't possibly comprehend all that John is saying. John writes for us high theology. And we need to understand, we need to be able to articulate, and we need to pass on to our children what John the Apostle believed about the Lamb of God. All right, let's read from John 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4, but we're only going to study the verse, first phrase of verse 1, but I want you to have a little bit of context. You guys know this passage of Scripture is very common. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not comprehended it, the KJV said. Now, initial thoughts to open up our study here, because it's very obvious that the Apostle John wrote differently than the, um, the, the other three gospel writers. And John has a different perspective, and so we need to be aware of that. We need to interact with what John's trying to tell us in order to properly understand what we'll read today. First, Matthew's gospel, it traces the lineage of Jesus. It opens with lineage, and it traces the lineage of Jesus through David... And towards Abraham. Because Matthew, as he wrote, he very much wanted to communicate to you that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so all through Matthew's gospel, he's constantly interacting with Old Testament prophecy. Because he wants you to see that the, that the Messiah prophesied throughout the Old Testament is Christ. That's largely Matthew's intent. Now, there's a little trick in interpretation that, that some put a lot of value on and some put a little value on. I... I don't have too much of an opinion other than it helps me. Um, in Revelation 4, there are four angelic beings surrounding the throne. And the first angelic being uh, has the face of a lion. So many would say that Matthew's gospel shows us that Jesus is the lion in the tribe of Judah, the, 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 the Jewish Messiah. And so in that way, Matthew's gospel reflects, reflects the angelic being with the face of the lion. Mark's gospel gives no lineage. Mark never talked about uh, where Jesus' ancestry was from. Mark's gospel, most believe, was the first gospel written. And if you'll read it carefully, you'll realize that the author, who uh, John Mark, as he writes, he's rather rushed, and he just jumps right in the story, and he closes the story abruptly. It's as if the evangelist, John Mark the evangelist, is saying, um, this story has got to get out yesterday. Just pumping it out. And so Mark's gospel gives no lineage, but, but Mark shows Jesus as the servant of humanity who serves us, washes us through his own suffering. He cleanses us through his own sacrifice. And some would say that the second angelic beast um, has the face of an ox, that the ox represents the servant of man. An ox could also be sacrificed. And so Mark's gospel reminds us that Jesus is the servant of all humanity. And so Luke, he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way to Adam. Luke tells the genealogy all the way back. Luke is a physician. 
we know from history, and he's thorough. Luke is very thorough. And so he's going to tell you the whole story. Traces it all the way back to Adam. Um, Luke um, tells us that Jesus wept. Jesus thirsted. Jesus took naps because he was sleepy. Luke wants you to know that Jesus was like us. He was man. Jesus, uh, Jesus thirsted, hungered, grew tired. And so in, in every way, Luke writes with the idea in mind that Jesus is fully man. And the third angelic being in Revelation 4 has the face of a man. John does not trace lineage to Abraham, to David, to Adam. John starts with, in the beginning, reminding us of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was. So John, he consistently wants us to see that, that Christ is God. He is truly God of God. John wants you to remember that everything Jesus says and does, he says and does as God. Yes, fully man. Luke told us that. He is fully man. But John wants you to know he's also fully God. Everything he does, he does as fully God. In John's gospel, it is built around seven signs. John tells us seven signs that Jesus did, starting with turning water into wine. And, and there are a lot of implications from that sign, but one very base implication would be that matter obeys the voice of Jesus. John tells us that Jesus strolled on the water. Jesus is not um, dependent upon the, the, the physics of whether or not he's buoyant enough to walk on water. Water is dependent on him. Water does what he says. And so John wants you to see when he breaks bread and a few loaves and a few fishes and feeds thousands of people, Jesus just tells matter to do what Jesus wants to tell matter to do and it does it. Not the other way around. And, and John's perspective from start to finish is kind of this heavenly perspective, right? He gives you a prophetic vision. He wants you to see the life of Christ the way that heaven saw the life of Christ. And so the fourth angelic beast has, is, is an eagle. It kind of stands for prof prophecy, the prophetic. Now, like Genesis 1, John 1's prologue does take poetic form. I, it's pretty common, pretty obvious that Genesis 1 is written with a poetic um, spin. But we believe, and the church has always believed, and, and Jews always believe, that Genesis 1 is literal. And so in the same sense, John 1 is poetic, but it's very much literal truth. Stone-cold fact. And if you want me to teach you later, I can teach you the stone-cold stunner. That's a wrestling move I'll pull out for you. Ooh, somebody snorted. <laughs> so from there, okay, we got all that kind of in your head. I will review that in the weeks to come because I want you to get those ideas because they really will help you in your study of Scripture in the days to come. From, from there, I just want to study the verse, first phrase of the first line. Next week, we'll discuss the, John's concept of Jesus being the Logos of God, the Word of God. But this week, I just want to look at, in the beginning was. What did John want you to take away from, in the beginning was? Notice that John did not write, in the beginning became. The heretics of old and the heretics today will knock on your door and labor to convince you that Christ, the Logos of God, became at the beginning. 
They'll do everything they can to tell you that Christ is the archangel Michael. They'll do everything they can to tell you that, oh, Christ is a God, but a God with a little g. He was born at the beginning. He's the first created being that everything else was created through, but he has a start. He's, he's not God. He's God with a little g. The heretics will scream that at your face. But John would shout back, no, he did not become, he was. When the, when the universe was birthed, when matter came into existence, time, space, um, um, all of those things began to shake out. Christ already was. He did not begin. He was at the beginning. He has no beginning. He was in the beginning before time. He's timeless. Before time began, he was. Before space, he couldn't be contained by space because he's, he's not contained by creation. Before matter, he is Lord over all matter. When he decides to walk on the water, he just does what he wants. From all eternity past, forever, Christ was. Eons of ages. Let your mind boggle as you try to perceive what that means. Look back down the corridors of time. And Christ just always, eons and eons of ages. Can you even call it ages before time? What is is time to the timeless one? Always existed. There never was a moment in history of all things that Christ wasn't. He was. Your mind should boggle. The walls of your thinking, the framework of your concepts should begin to collapse as you try to perceive and think on the eternality of Christ. And that's what it means to worship. When your brain tries to perceive God and you realize that you can't even form logical thought to perceive his greatness. It's only three pounds of matter in your skull anyway. We stand in awe of his eternal sufficiency. He always was. He needed nothing. He just was. And that's when we begin to claim his awesomeness. That's what it means to worship. We ponder his infinite wonder. We bow in reverence as your creative cognitive faculties fail as you try to consider his eternal nature. John's first claim that he wants you to know as he sits to pen his gospel is, in the beginning, was. That Greek is in It's where we get the word archaic. There's no other way to explain the oldest of old in, in, John, in, in Greek. In, in the oldest of old time, in, in ar- archaic, in archaic. He already was. So John tells us that the Logos of God, the Word, Jesus, is eternal. He had no start. He always was. From that theological claim, what then are the implications of this truth? Haley and I were, and some other friends were once in a taxi, um, and we were going to the airport, and we had a Muslim taxi driver, and he was a gracious man, and but he loved to debate more than I loved to debate. And so we were just sparring away as we drove to the airport, which no matter what our culture tells you today, that's actually not hateful. It's perfectly honest and good to have have respectful debate. And so um, we're just going at it, and, and the man really was gracious. We debated hotly, and when we got out of the car, he says, have a wonderful day. Um, and so... Um, he says to me, um, which is a common claim, he says, show me one place where Jesus claimed to be God. And I quoted to him from John eight fifty eight, 
Truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego in me is the Greek. Jesus pulls on the divine name given to Moses before Abraham's birth. Abraham had a beginning. He had a start. He was conceived and born and lived a life. And Jesus says some thousands of years later, before Abraham was, before he had his start, ego and me, I am the God of old. When God says, I am, he is saying in every way, I just am. I don't need, didn't need a start. To be eternal implies that Christ has no cause. Everything in creation has a a cause. He is a, a causeless being. He had no start. I remember as a kid asking an elder, I said, where did God come from? And they said, oh, don't ask those kind of questions. And, and my kids say, dad, where did God come from? And I said, God didn't come from. He was forever. Ponder Adam. Adam needed God's hands to form clay. He needed the clay, the matter, to be shaped. Adam needed God to breathe in his lungs for breath. Christ needed no forming. He needed no matter. He needed no one to breathe life into his lungs. Ontologically speaking, he is life itself. The fact that he had no beginning testifies to the truth that Christ needed nothing to exist. He just did. I am because I am. This is why John will record for us in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus' words, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. Because he is causeless, he also is sustained by his own nature. He doesn't need breath in his lungs. We need food and we need things. Christ, the Logos of old, is perfectly sufficient within his own sufficiency. He lays his life down on his own accord. No No one could take his life from him. He lays it down on his own accord and when he's good and ready, he takes it back up again. He neither needs a cause to begin nor does he need a cause to continue. If he does not need a cause to continue, then nothing will snuff him out. He will always be. He is endless, infinite. So eternal, no beginning requires that he is self-sufficient today. So he says, I, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And John records in Revelation 1.18, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. He was without a beginning and he is today without being upheld by any other outside source. You understand what I mean by that? If God were to stop pumping life into your veins today, you would drop dead. Christ needed nothing to sustain him. Needs nothing to sustain him today. 
And so if Christ has no beginning and he needs nothing to continue, he is totally self-sufficient, therefore he will never end. Christ has no end. He is endless, eternal. That's why Christ is the cornerstone that the church is built on. That's why we say he's the rock of God. He's the foundation that can't be shaken. He will reign forever over heaven and earth and all under earth. The universe has a king sitting on the throne today and he will be on the throne forever. When time ends, the universe is rolled up. Christ will remain Lord. He cannot be shaken. He was there when Adam took his first breath. In the beginning, he was. He was there when Adam took his first breath. I believe Abraham spoke with Christ as he talked about his infertility and and God promises that Abraham that he will conceive. He was. Christ was during Abraham's and Sarah's inability to conceive. He was there when Israel had the hot breath of Egypt breathing down her neck. Christ was. Egypt's seemingly supreme, authoritative, powerful army couldn't snuff him out. He was. When Babylon rose to power, and Babylon seemed like the ultimate world power, that no one could destroy her. When Babylon rose and she took Israel captive and Judah was taken from her homeland, there was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in a fiery furnace. And you know who was there? He was. You say, oh, Babylon, it's the end of the world. Look at this world power, their weapons. We should tremble with fear. No, he was. And Rome rose to power, and Rome was something else, taking over the whole world. And it was during Rome's era that Christ became incarnate, took on flesh for our likeness. He was there in the midst of that. And the Jews and Rome plot together to crucify our Messiah again. No one took his life. He laid it down. And when they crucified him and he laid down his life, he just got up again. He was. And when wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and plagues shook the earth, Christ was still speaking. He was still moving. His church has still been alive and active in the gates of hell herself. They won't prevail against the church because Christ is. And when the slave trade and all of its evil was in full swing, Christ is. And he raised up men like William Wilberforce to combat that great evil. And you may say to me, oh, Caleb, but we've got the coronavirus. Bite your nails. And I'll say, he's the God of the Black Plague. He was during the age of the Black Plague. And whether you know it or not, ministers died at a much greater rate during the Black Plague because they chose to minister to the dying, knowing that they're putting themselves at risk, and the church still was. And you say, why would Christ allow men to die? And and, and I would say, Christ does what Christ wants to do. He says, no greater love has any man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Some during the Black Plague were healed, And some ministered to the dying only to catch the plague and die themselves. But Jesus says there's no greater love than putting your own self at risk in order to minister to bless someone else. (laughs) 
When Nazi Germany comes knocking on the world's door, he was. There was Corey Timboom praying with her sister in the concentration camp. There was Dietrich Bonhoeffer praying steadfastly in a prison cell. He was. You say, oh, we've got communism coming. Communism's coming to our door. Oh, communism isn't new to Christ. Communism can't snuff him out. He was God through every error. And he's had men in every hour who are anointed of his spirit to preach and proclaim the gospel of Christ, to heal the sick and to drive out demonic principalities and entities. In every error, Christ was and the church is. He was Lord in 2001 when the towers fell and we all bit our nails wondering what was to come next. He was in 2008 when the economy collapsed and you all felt that woe. He was in 2020 throughout the pandemic. The rock of God was. You cannot. And I say this with all the authority that a little 30-something-year-old pastor has. You cannot be faced with trial and throw away your Christianity as if your trial has the ability to snuff out his authority. It can't. And I can tell you with prophetic accuracy, there will be more trials to come. And he will sustain his church. There may be more disease. There will be economic collapse. There will be days of trial and suffering. There may be war and rumors of war. In this life, you will have trouble. But fear not. I've overcome the world. He is unmovable. He cannot be shaken. Culture will change. Your economic standing may change. Your health may change. Our freedoms, our liberties, our comfort may be taken from us. But Christ was and he is and he is to come. And when you strip me down and I've got nothing but Christ, it's enough. It's enough. He's enough. Worship team, if you'd come for me. What does Christ's eternality mean to me? It means that he is causeless. He didn't need anything to start. He's just always been. His causelessness means to me that he is continually sustained by his own sufficiency. He doesn't need anyone to hold him up. There's no, there's no life support for Christ. He just will continue. And his causelessness and his needlessness tells me, and Scripture tells me, that he is endless. He will always be. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and was and is to come. Every day of my life, I am held in the hands of the eternal Christ, the eternal rock. And his church is not built on shifting sand. Oh, build your church on cultural movements. Yeah, the shifting sand. Build your faith on whether or not Christianity is popular. Yeah, shifting sand. Build your faith on whether or not the music is good or the preacher is good or whether or not you got chill bumps when he spoke. Yeah, that's sifting sand. But you build your faith on the rock of God. And all trials do for me is give me an opportunity to sink my roots deep into who he is. And all, all trials do for the church is give her opportunity to stand in faith and to believe and trust when the next plague comes knocking, it may be legitimate, legitimate health crisis, 
We can't be shaken from our foundation. Plagues don't control the existence of the Lord. And He is all we need to be satisfied. He is the sweetness of life. Let your soul delight in God. And the money may come and go. Let your soul be pleased in the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. And comfort may come and go. Let your soul taste and see that he is good. Shut your door and turn off the light. Hit your knees and rest in his perfection, his majestic awesomeness, in his glory and in his beauty. And you will find that many throughout church history have lived their entire lives in prison, yet would say, I am satisfied because he is. In storms, we have peace. Because the God of peace still stands. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, the, my, the greatest preacher in the last hundred years, says, faith is this. Faith is the refusal to panic. Faith is refusal to panic. When, when everything seems to shake, and the news media is screaming down your throat, and the doctor says things aren't looking good, it's the refusal to panic. Christ is. We will pray for healing, lean into healing, believe for healing. But even if death comes, Christ is. And the church's primary response to all of this is to say, even so, Lord, come. Spirit and the bride say, come. We, in the midst of turmoil, await with eager expectation the return of Christ Jesus. And on that day, all things will be made right. And on that day, every disease will meet its end. On that day, every persecution will crumble. Every evil man and woman will be judged and the church will have full and abundant peace, life, and joy in Christ. Even so, come Lord Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. I want to say to you this morning that we've, we've, I'm going to get into some practice here. We've got our connect group signups out there today. I want to say to you that you will have trials in life and you've got to surround yourself with people who will remind you of the truth of scripture when the world's screaming at you. When sickness comes, you need brothers and sisters who say Christ is. I understand that the diagnosis, I understand the trial. Christ is. He's, your life is in his hands. You've got to have community. And let me say this to you, church. You may say, my life's great. I don't need anything. There may be someone who needs you. Okay? And so we've got to participate in the communal life of the church to bolster one another up. And so I want to encourage you this morning. We're doing just four-week small groups throughout the summer. I want to encourage you to get out there and sign up and make sure you surround yourself and you surround others with the doctrine of who Jesus is. Go ahead and stand to your feet for me if you're able. Altar team, if you guys will get into place for me. If this is a season of discouragement for you, I felt in my spirit that 
that there are some who have been under um, demonic attack. You really feel like the enemy has been breathing down your neck, whispering things in your ear. You feel discouraged even more so than you normally feel discouraged. I want to ask you this morning to come to the altars. I believe today the Holy Spirit wants to silence the voice of the accuser over your life. I believe today is the day to get freedom and liberty. And we believe in the power of prayer. So firstly, if that's you, I want to ask you to come. Second, as we prayed, we felt that some, that there was someone in particular here this morning who's dealing with a deep self-hatred. Maybe you've cut some. Maybe you are um, flirting with, with um, food, with bulimia or anorexia, those kind of things, self-hatred, self-image issues. We want to tell you that there's a better way, man. And today you can be set free from that if you come and receive prayer. Lastly, as we step back, just quickly back into a moment of worship, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you don't know what you're missing. If you've never been washed by the blood of Jesus, you don't know what you're missing. You are guilty. And Christ will judge every human on the last day. And all of us are guilty. Your only hope is to hide yourself in his own perfect life and sacrifice. So when Christ died on the cross, he didn't hang there because he had committed some great crime. He laid his life down on your behalf. He died a cruel and harsh death so that you could have eternal life. The punishment that you deserve for your guilt, he bore on his own back. It's your only hope. The only way anyone will enter into heaven in eternal glory is not by their works. No one will stand in heaven and say, look what I've done. The only, your only option is one of two things. Judgment or salvation by grace through the blood of Christ. That's clearly what the scriptures teach. That's clearly what Paul taught and John taught. No one will stand in heaven and pat themselves on the back and say, look what I did. We will all bow our knees and say, look what Christ has done for me. What does that mean for you? That means that you're not being kept out from the kingdom of heaven because of your past sexual sins. You're not being kept out of the kingdom of heaven because of your financial sins, your bitterness, your deceit, your lies, your gossip. You can't say to me, Caleb, oh, you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. It's totally about what Christ has done. You're not being kept out this morning. The only thing that's keeping you out is your own pride. Your own unwillingness to come and bow before Jesus. So the altars are officially open. I want you to come now. The altars are open. If you're struggling with discouragement, if you're struggling with um, any self-hatred, if you just need prayer, you're struggling with sickness, or if you need to give your life to Christ, the altars are open. Come now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, church, let's worship just for one more minute. Hallelujah. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus.
morning in response, God, to what John told us in John 1, that in the beginning Christ was, we just bring worship and we choose to rest our lives on the rock of God, the cornerstone that can't be shaken. We reject fear. We reject panic. And we bless your name. We bless your name in the face of trial. We bless your name in the face of hardship. Come on, somebody say, I'll, I'll bless your name in the face of depression. I bless your name in the face of anxiety. When my circumstances scream otherwise, I choose to stand and bless the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, we ask that you'd heal, deliver, save. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. Amen. Hey, well, the altars are going to stay open. Don't rush out of here. Um, the worship team will hang. So if you need ministry, just, you just feel free to hang out for a little bit. But if not, you're officially dismissed. We love you so much. Please take your kids home. Don't leave them.